we have lots of fears. And the ultimate fear is that we may die. And that's why I, I'm so drawn to this way of a Bushido way of living that mm. to acknowledge that we are, we're always dying. We're already dying, right? And that we are, in a sense, we have nothing to lose mm. by going down that path. And of course, we have to be, have judgment and we have to know ourselves enough to know, can we survive if we go down that path? Do we really have what it takes to go down that path. And maybe, maybe we don't. And we realize that. And so we say, well, maybe I better take this path instead, because I believe I can do this. It's still challenging, but I, I believe I can do that. And I think that's what we're all trying to find too, is the right path for us. We don't all have to, you know, take the most severe, difficult, dangerous, potentially tragic, fatal path, but we can find the one that will challenge us but we can do it and we can have that faith and the and trust in something and i think that's where the importance of trust comes in this is nick kemp with the ikigai podcast japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life find your ikigai at ikigaitribe.com My guest today on the Ikigai podcast is Dr. Stephen Murphy Shigematsu, an American Japanese psychologist at Stanford University. Stephen teaches and researches human development through mindfulness, Asian wisdom, science, compassion, and responsibility. Stephen, you are a speaker, workshop leader, and author. You received a doctorate in clinical and community psychology from Harvard University, and you were also a professor at the University of Tokyo. Thank you for your time today, Stephen. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. It's my pleasure. Do you want to start with a little bit of background? Well, I've found that more and more difficult the older I get because there's more and more background <laughs> to give. So I'm often not sure where to where to begin. Sure. Well, I guess you could begin maybe where you were born, and you're obviously half Japanese, so maybe you yeah. can touch on that. Okay. I was born in Tokyo after the war, and that's something that you know has stayed with me my whole life because that's often a question that you're asked, where are you from and where are you born? So even though I didn't stay very long, I it's been part of my identity, I guess, because that's what set me apart in the United States when my family I'm in California right now, and when my family came to Massachusetts, because that's where my the other side came from. So my father was American, but his parents had come from uh, southwestern Ireland and had settled in the western part of Massachusetts. And so that's where we came when my father became homesick after spending eight years in Japan. Uh, And so we came to live there, and that's what was... That's the city of Pittsfield was very, almost completely immigrants from uh, Europe or original settlers from that area. And so the, that we were the only family from Japan was quite interesting, <laughs> to put it mildly, <laughs> <laughs> to people. And uh, because of that, I think it helped me in the sense of reminding me who I was. And it may have emphasized who I was in a certain way more than 
might might not have I would not have become in a different environment. Mm-hmm. But I felt like it was important, I think, as for me as a child to somehow maintain my dignity by accepting that the way that they saw me and saying at least the parts of it that the fact that they saw me as Japanese and that I needed to somehow accept that and embrace that and to see that in a positive way because the way that it was being projected to me was quite negative. And this is, you know, because of the times, it was not that long after a war in which many Americans had also suffered and and died and were maimed. And it also follows a long history of racism against Japanese uh, and propaganda that was accelerated during the war. And so it's it was natural, I think, that the environment at that time was at times very hostile. But it had the, I guess, the unintended or the effect of uh, really emphasizing my Japanese identity for me. And so that became a big part of who I was and eventually led to my whole sense of needing to return there. And it was with a kind of sense of returning home and a feeling of uh, being on a pilgrimage. And uh, so I ended up going back to Japan and staying for, I guess I've lived there about 20 years and made a family there and a career there. And I guess the part that I would like to emphasize now is that I, I'm i here partly because my grandmother was so open to seeing the world in a new way after the war and seeing that she said when my mother brought home my father, who was American, my grandfather at first said, you know, we don't want this person even in our home. Mm. And she said, no, this is not right. You know, the war is over. We are at peace, and this human being is just another human being. And it doesn't matter what their race is, what their nationality is, what their culture is, their religion. As long as there is respect between us and he respects us, then he's welcome in our home. So they allowed my father to come, and even though they couldn't legally be married at the time. Oh, wow. Um, and so he lived there. They had a Shinto ceremony to acknowledge that they were married, but legally they were not. And so my two older sisters were born as Shigematsus in uh, my mother's new family register. But by the time I was born, my parents had legally married. And so I was born as an American named Murphy, and my where my two sisters were Japanese as Shigematsu. But, <laughs> so that's the kind of the, the tone of our of my life and but it led to a return later and that return meant also returning to live with this grandmother who had really opened up the world by my existence by allowing my my parents to be together wow she sounds very progressive and forward thinking (laughs) back then so yeah yeah, and she's part of the reason why you're here today so (laughs) that's amazing yeah (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that. I guess, yeah, as a father of a son who's half Australian and and Japanese, mm-hmm. and he's now, oh, he's almost 20 now. He was also born in Japan and spent his first three years there. And mm-hmm. a part of me hopes he, he returns to explore the culture more deeply and maybe connect back to, yeah, some memories that might come to the surface when he goes back. So, yeah, I hope he explores that. You know, that was something that I studied like formally and academically and uh, as a research topic. And I found that for some people, it's not that important. It becomes something that is 
somehow not a priority in their life and the other things assume more importance. But for others, it becomes a very important part of finding some kind of sense of wholeness and meaning in their life. And, uh, you know, for me, I think I was an extreme in the sense of feeling that it was almost like a calling for me to return to Japan. And it became, I saw it almost in the sense of ikigai or a purpose for my life. And it really was transformative for me in that sense. And I found that, you know, I looked for other people to talk to and to interview about it. And there I gathered many stories about by other people who, all, for them, it was also a part of their journey of becoming more whole mm. by embracing or learning more about that other part of themselves that was difficult to learn about in the environment in which they had been raised. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, the world's a different place, I guess, and Australia's very multicultural. So I don't think my son's had any issues with his mixed race or whatever we could call it. But yeah, I do do hope he returns and explores and finds a part of himself that sort of doesn't exist here. And I hope you, yeah, it does reconnect with Japanese culture. So I might, not not going to push him, but I'll certainly encourage it. Yeah. (laughs) I know. And it could even be, I guess I have two thoughts about that. One is that I never told my parents about things that were happening that were difficult because I thought, especially for my, I never told my mother because I thought it would be a burden to her because it was all about her. You know, the the reason they they were calling me a Jap was because my mother was Japanese. And so I never told my parents. So I think that's always a possibility. But the other is that the world has changed so much in the sense that Japan is viewed by so many people now as a very favorable, Mm. in a very favorable way. And the whole, when my kids came to the U.S., they had Pokemon cards and the other kids in the neighborhood gathered and my kids would (laughs) give them away. And and now um, I work more at the higher level of college students and many of them, you know, have been exposed to Japanese anime and manga and they feel like they see a lot of very positive things in Japanese culture. Yes. And want to go to Japan. And so almost everybody I meet, it seems these days would love to go to Japan or have been to Japan and love it there and see something of the, are able to see more the the beauty of the culture and the Mm. people. I mean, that's what attracted me, this this beautiful culture that I wanted to learn about mm. 30 years ago. And, I mean, even at that time, some of my mother's friends, very conservative friends, mm. <laughs> weren't too impressed that I had such a strong interest in Japan. And, yeah, they, they were using words I didn't really appreciate at the time. And then I think when they found out I was marrying a Japanese, <laughs> I think they stopped saying those words, but that doesn't seem to exist now, especially in in Melbourne where most families seem to have mixed race. Um, I think when I went to my, I remember going to my son's high school on an information night and just all the families were from different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. mixed race. So I thought, wow, yeah, Melbourne's such a multicultural, such a... Mm -hmm. Such a positive thing. So, but yeah, my son might not be sharing everything with me and he might be unique in that he's, I think he's one of few half Japanese, but he's, he's not at school anymore. But 
it's never really a topic we you know talk about. It's just sort of normal. So um, yeah. his mum's Japanese, his father's Australian, and I think he probably feels he's just another Aussie. But mm-hmm. I'm sure he'll yeah he'll go back, and he has a strong interest in. Japanese music, actually, so not not traditional music, but sort of modern music. He's into music production, and he's always amazed at actually J- Japan's relationship with jazz. So, yes, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, in my experience, that's when people encounter difficulties. Is when they in the in, well, I know the American context when people try to join like Japanese American or Asian American groups. Ah and they're of mixed ancestry, then they will often report that they encounter some kind of difficulties in in entering those groups because of the gatekeepers and people, the issues of are you really, you know, Japanese enough or Asian enough to join? (laughs) I see. And then if they grow up in Japan or they live in Japan or they they go to Japan, then they also encounter some kind of conflict or identity consciousness, at least, you know, because you're aware that you're, the way you saw yourself maybe as Japanese is not the way that other people see you. And you have to somehow deal with that that, uh, and how, and that can begin from childhood when you try to in the educational system, how the educational system treats you and the difference between the public schools, the international schools, and then all the, the way you're treated socially because of the physical, the way you're perceived physically and the whole sense of what is Japanese, of course, is not uh, has not evolved very much beyond the sense of a kind of racial purity, and uh, mm. beyond outside of that, people are still not considered Japanese. But there's been more and more, you know, so-called hafu in the media too. That's right. Uh, yeah, representing a different appearance. That when people hear their, especially their fluent Japanese, then they will start. I think the whole image of what a Japanese is starting to alter somewhat anyway. Yes. It's interesting you share that. I, I did have a guest, uh, Yohei Nakajima, who was born in Japan, mm. I think his first couple of years, and then moved to America with his family mm. and spent, I think, most of his education up until what you guys would have, uh, middle high school. Then he returned to Japan to do his final three years. And in America, I think he did experience some, maybe some racism, but just being obviously pointed out he wasn't American and being, I guess, perceived as fully Japanese. And he shared that he did feel he he wasn't really American. Mm -hmm. And then he went back to Japan and I guess having spent most of his life in America, he said he quickly realized, well, I'm definitely not Japanese. Like, I, <laughs> I guess in terms of mindsets and yeah. trying to, I guess, develop full fluency with Japanese and all those sort of challenges. And then once he finished high school, yeah, I think he, he wanted to return to America. And that was interesting. He kind of shared he... He couldn't be fully himself or maybe perhaps a full person mm. during his teenage years in either country. I don't think that's the case now. So, yeah, he was, I guess, pure Japanese in the sense that, you know, both his parents were Japanese, but mm. because he grew up in both countries, yeah, people perceived him as not being American and not being Japanese. Yeah. Which, 
but she seemed to handle very well. Uh, so, <laughs> hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, the Fine Juru Ikigai Course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. Well, let me say one more thing about that. I think the common journey is from the worst feeling is that you're not part of either one mm-hmm. and that you know hopefully evolves into a sense that i i am this and i am that and so to a sense of i can be both and it, mm-hmm. i can be both but not in a way maybe that you other people might you know see this is what a, a real american is or this is what a real japanese is but i can be both in my own way yeah and that becomes you know people go through as often through a struggle in which they want to assert i'm not half i'm double and you know and if <laughs> i'm uh which i think is a positive trend but it's also kind of strange to say you're double a double human being right because <laughs> just another human being but i that it's just a, it's a step towards a full just acceptance of this is so like i never say half anymore i never say i'm half american half japanese because i don't think a human being should be divided in that way but i just say i am japanese and i'm american and i'm irish and i'm all those things in just the way i am the way i put them together and it matters to me much less what anybody else thinks about me who i am and i just feel uh, many people are more able to simply you know define themselves as they see themselves but part of that is I think a real journey of empowerment in the sense that if you feel much more empowered to say you're Japanese, if you have some sense of the language and the culture. And so the very famous psychologist Erickson said, we can overcome a sense of identity consciousness by identity one in action, meaning that if you actually do something. So for me, I, I lived 20 years in Japan. I lived with my grandmother. I had Japanese children in the school system and so I don't have to, you know, assert I'm Japanese, but I can simply talk about my life experiences, which are part of Japanese society. In that sense, I feel like we can empower ourselves to become become something by living it and being it. Mm. Yeah, as you were talking, the the phrase "jibun uh, rashi" came to mind. Is does that tie into it? This idea you're you're just being who you are, or self-acceptance yeah yeah and i think that's not only good for us but it's good for others others are comfortable with us if they feel we're simply being ourselves we're simply being authentic and we're not pretending to be something i think there were times in my life when i pretended to be more japanese than i was because i really hadn't had much experience in the society and but i wanted to be seen as japanese i wanted to see myself as japanese so I think there have been times in which I was not as authentic as I can be now when I simply say, this is who I am, because this is mm. the life I have been living. Jibun Rashi. <laughs> yeah, man, I guess it is a question you're often asked, both in Japan and maybe in the States, when you meet people mm. for the first time, 
And when I lived in Japan, I was often asked, you know, where are you from? Almost every time I met someone. And so that became, <laughs> sort of became a bit stale after <laughs> meeting hundreds of people, like this constant question of, yeah, where are you from? Do you find that still happens when you go to Japan? Do people still ask you where you're from when they don't know you? Yeah, I think、um, more people think I'm a foreigner than think that I'm Japanese. And so, in that sense, I share you know, an experience that you would have too, in which people often feel like they are in the same way that someone can become American. It's often as a hyphenated, so called hyphenated American,、mm-hmm. Japanese American, and Chinese American. I think that that has to happen in Japan as well, that people have to be able To say when somebody asks, where are you from? Well, I'm, I'm from here. This is, where I, you know, this is where I live. This is where I have lived. And then who are you? Well, I'm an American Japanese, or I'm an Australian Japanese, or I'm a Chinese Japanese. And I、mm-hmm. think that it's very slow to come to Japan, but I think that consciousness has to come where, so that people who come to the society feel that they can become fully part of it and not. Continually have to say, I'm well, I'm Australian, but well, but I've lived here for 20 years. How long do you have to live here before you become part of the society? So, to me, that whole idea of what is Japanese has to evolve for the society to become more open. Awesome. I can relate to that. Yeah, that was <laughs> sort of became a frustration. And it got to the point where I, I think I anticipated the question every time I was. Meeting people, I thought, oh, here we go again. I'm going to be asked this question of, you know, are you American or where are you from? And、yeah. I had to sort of restrain myself and just go,、oh, I'm, you know, from Australia. And oh, <laughs>、um, questions about kangaroos and all that sort of thing <laughs> or koalas. So、yeah. it was quite a powerful lesson in restraint and, <laughs> and not showing frustration. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine who is a,、uh, you know, a Zainichi Kankoku Jin, he coined the expression、uh, in English, ethnic fatigue. <laughs> and he was describing that sense. <laughs>、uh, you have to deal with this, you know, like every day.、Mm. <laughs> a sense of, are you, who are you? <laughs> Why are you here? You know, when are you going back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, that's a great phrase, ethnic fatigue. Cool. Well, that's been a very, Long casual introduction, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I, as I mentioned to you, I have all these questions prepared. Okay. And I thought I'd start with a question about a presentation you recently gave at a Zen 2.0 event that was held last month, both live and online. Yeah. And you gave a presentation on how can we live and die like water?、Mm. So I thought I would start there. And at the beginning of your presentation, you asked the question, how do we connect to a source of life energy?、Mm. And so I'd like to ask, what do you mean by a source of life energy? I was thinking of you know, the word、uh, ki, which is in you know, so many Japanese expressions from genki, byoki, tenki, everything, you know, kiyotsukete. And, and yet it seems to have lost its. Meaning in the sense that people don't know what it means anymore, I think, and、mm-hmm. just use it all the time. But certainly it's something that others have gotten very interested in. Like the, when Star Wars was made, George Lucas was used what he called the force, right? May the force be with you, <laughs> stay with the force, trust in the force. 
and in the later films even talked about explain what is the force and it was very much completely what key is and it's the whole sense that there is a source of energy and life that is in the universe and also in in us it runs through our bodies and it can be blocked and so one of the things i was very interested in chinese medicine when i was younger and i studied chinese medicine in japan for a year and it was part of the theory is that about that there is this key that runs through our bodies and that that key can become blocked at certain places in our body and therefore mm. the whole philosophy and the medicine about how to release that and let the energy flow is all you know very much a part of philosophy and medicine and so the whole area of health and well-being which was part of the topic of that particular conference and so i was really yeah asking how do we get in touch with a source what source of vitality what can give us vitality and i was also you know thinking of something that i focused on a lot more in my life recently is awareness of death and which is something that is you know deep in bushido and the samurai way of of living is to contemplate death every day and to even begin your day with the awareness that you are alive but you are dying and you will die and to use that as a way to live better and to be more present in your life and i've also have roots though that are in catholicism and i when our family came from japan to the united states we met our irish family they were one generation removed from ireland and a condition for our acceptance was that we become catholic and so i grew up in the catholic church and the catholic school and there's an expression that from catholicism memento morti and memento just means remember and morti means die and this has become a game in japan recently of a group of young women who live in this way and defy fear and danger and with this awareness that remember that you die and this is you know it's to me a very cross cultural thing you see it in many different cultures that and i think the the contemporary culture is the one that is getting the furthest away from this kind of awareness and we're we've become really a cultures of denial of death mm. and that trying to keep death away from us as much as possible by numbing ourselves with entertainment and different kinds of pleasures or drugs or ways of keeping ourselves away from that reality and i wanted to focus on source as a way of saying that if we can connect to the real sense of what keeps us alive and what makes us want to live or what we're willing to live for in the face of all the other things that may be happening in our lives that make life so difficult and whatever that is that we need to connect to that and we need to find our own way to connect to that and that that has often been through religion but that can be through i think many people find that in nature now so to see that the feeling connected to something in japanese i like the expression oi naru mono so something beyond you don't have to call it kamisama you don't have to call it god but something mm-hmm. beyond the human connecting to that and it may be just you know by experiencing the majesty 
and the wonder and the awe of nature. Um, so that was the original idea of that. <laughs> and the people who made the conference, they developed that, the way of thinking about the way of water as force mm-hmm. and then flow and alignment. And so I made a a talk that was um, in line with that, trying to connect to what does it mean to connect to a source? What does it mean to go with the flow of life? What does it mean to align ourselves with some kind of a purpose in life? Now, it all resonates with me, everything from describing it as the force. I, I was a huge <laughs> Star Wars fan growing up in the 70s. And, yeah, connection to nature and even just the the greeting, you know, Genki, like Genki, yeah. the questions really asking, uh, it's almost asking, are you the are you the source of energy? Like, you know, if you look at the kanji, so it's it's almost like saying, "Hey, are you are you vibrant today, or are you are you full of vitality?" Yeah. <laughs> As a greeting, it's such a powerful um, question, and yeah, I, I do love the Japanese language, either expressions or words, or just even a single kanji in this idea yeah. of energy, which yeah we have and we use every day, and. Yeah, yeah the, these questions of you actually ask or you actually recommend some questions to ask ourselves to connect to source, including processing the fact that, yeah, we will eventually die, but also questions on who am I, uh, mm. what is my purpose, why am I here? And you mentioned in the talk that we could connect source to either being a religious or spiritual experience. And many people do say, you know, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Can you touch on the word spiritual and its Latin root as you did in your presentation? Yeah. Before that, I'd like to respond to what you just said. So (laughs) the beauty of the language, right, is that when you ask somebody, O Genki Desuka, then the traditional response was okake sama day, right? And <laughs> it really portrays that sense that we can connect to that source of energy and meaning, purpose, whatever it is, ikigai, through our connections with others. And it's through the benevolence of others, right? It's through the, the kindness and the graciousness. It's in that togetherness. It's in that community that we can find ourselves connected to that source of energy so that i think what you said about you know the beauty of the language is also it's there but it's also being lost if we don't reflect on it and see what what it truly means and your question was how do we uh oh the source of religion yeah but before you answer that i i remember okage day, and i it took me so long to get it and i'd be asking what does it mean and Mm. Yeah, I think eventually I stumbled upon someone saying, oh, it's as the gods would have it, or thanks to the gods. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that can't be right. <laughs> but I, I think I eventually got it. But thanks for reminding me of that um, reply. Yeah, so <laughs> just fascinating, um, these, yeah, beautiful expressions and simple replies that are so deep and meaningful in the, the Japanese language. So, yeah, let's move on to this uh, Latin root of spirit, spiritual. Okay, I think you brought up something that's very deep in meaning today in Japan and that the inability to talk about God, the inability to talk about what is really most important in life, the language doesn't seem to be there. Or the language is there, but people don't use the language. And 
as you mentioned in the original word for spirit in Latin means breath. And then it's also, if you look at the kanji, the top part is like the G, self, and the bottom part is kokoro. And so I think the two are very similar in the sense that they show the very deep connection of the heart and the spirit with the breath. And so if you think of what is mindfulness, you know, mind, mindfulness to me is really simply bringing attention to our breath. We become mindful if we can somehow bring our attention inward and just to the reality of that, the breathing and how the breath is life itself, giving us life. And I think that sense of spirit is lost when it's become associated in particular in Japanese, it's hard to, when you translate it into katakana, spiritual, it becomes a kind of associated more with strange psychic type of powers and energies and kind of a world that for many people is beyond the realm of acceptable reality and scientific reality. And and that's very different from what it means in English today. And I think I mentioned in the talk that at Stanford, the, the Office for Religious Life uh, has had to change their name to the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life. And that's right. it's an acknowledgement that the expression you use that so many students saying, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And it's the spiritual part, I think, means the search for meaning, the search for purpose the belief that that's the best way to live is if we truly believe that there is some kind of reason, meaning, purpose for our existence, and that there's a unique purpose for our existence, that we are all created for something special, unique, mm. and that no one lives the life that we live, and no one is quite like us. And I think the word spiritual portrays that for many people today. Well, you've just, <laughs> we're going on another tangent now, but you've just reminded me of the Japanese word for purpose, shimei, and how it's a combination of to use, like skao, so, and inochi, your life, to use your life, your life. which I think is a, a wonderful way to describe purpose. Like, how do you want to use your, your life, mm-hmm. which is unique, in a perhaps a unique way that serves a greater good? So there seems to be all these unique definitions that we could understand just as wisdom within Japanese words. Just two kanji can represent all that. Yeah. So, and that's something um, Miko Kamiya wrote on in her book, Ikigai Nitsuite. I like to think of her as the mother of Ikigai. She wrote that we feel Ikigai most intensely if we do pursue some sort of strong sense of purpose or personal mission. Yeah. And it, it certainly doesn't have to be something overly ambitious. It's just something we feel is unique to us and that we're sort of wired to do or maybe have the key, the energy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I guess being mindful helps us maybe find the answer as to, yeah, why we're here and what we should do with this life we have. Yeah, I guess that's my hope is that it enables us to listen more clearly, more carefully to what is inside us and telling us this is who I am. And it's so hard to hear that voice, though, because we're so overwhelmed with the noise of other people's voices. And certainly since the time we're little, we've had 
other people telling us this is who you are. And we we sometimes believe it. And it usually is wrong <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> it distorts, you know, who we really are. And I think that's one of the great benefits of mindfulness is simply that it can help to quiet those. It can bring a silence that can, I think, from which some kinds of truths can emerge and um, clearer voices can emerge that will enable us to better understand who we are, can possibly give us the courage to actually live that too. Because I think many people see those glimpses of who they really are, but then it can be terrifying. It can be very frightening to think if that's who I am, that's a tough road. (laughs) And uh, many of us cannot choose the tough road. We're not able to. We want the simple, safer, more secure way of the path that down the life. And many of our people who are elders, our parents and others will often tell us that's the way to go. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, I think, courage and clarity in your life to be able to choose the path that is not as well lit and is not as well... (laughs) You don't see the gold pot at the end so clearly. <laughs> but what's interesting is once you're on that journey, then seems to come, I mean, it comes with its challenges, but then it seems to come with serendipity and ease as you move along that journey. I guess the hard part is overcoming that fear. And I, I think we turn to avoidance and we turn to entertainment, alcohol, all these things that you described that numbs us. It's like we're afraid to take that first step to face ourselves and find out who we are because of what you've just mentioned, told to do things a certain way. We're told that you you can or can't be this or that person and we don't take enough time to reflect and give deep thought to who we are, who we want to be and and be present enough, be mindful enough to either action or or just, just even contemplate those kinds of questions. Yeah. One of the reasons I focus so much on death is that I think that death is the ultimate fear, and that when we're think when we see the possibility of this other path, we are often reminded by others or we see them ourselves the possible dangers right of, mm. that we may fail, and the failure may be fatal, even you know the dangers that exist when we think of a path that is involves a great deal of bravery and courage to follow that path and that we have lots of fears and the ultimate fear is that we may die and that's why i i'm so drawn to this way of a bushido way of living that Mm. to acknowledge that we are we're always dying we're already dying right and that we are in a sense you have nothing to lose Mm. by going down that path and of course we have to be have judgment and we have to know ourselves enough to know can we survive if we go down that path do we really have what it takes to go down that path and maybe maybe we don't and we realize that and so we say well maybe i better take this path instead because i believe i can do this still challenging but i i believe i can do that and i think that's what we're all trying to find too is the right path for us and we don't all have to you know take the most severe difficult, dangerous, potentially tragic, fatal path, but we can find the one that will challenge us, but we can do it. And we yeah. can have that faith and the and trust in something. And I think that's where the importance of trust comes in. So you 
when we mentioned Star Wars at the beginning, and there's the scene that I just keep playing for myself over and over again just the other day is the scene where in the first film where Luke Skywalker, who is the Jedi Knight, right? He's in the final scene in which he it's life or death, not just for him, but for the universe, right? Mm. And so if he can do it, <laughs> the universe will be saved. But if he can't do it, then it will be destroyed by the Death Star or something. And he's got a computerized weapon, right? Mm. And he hears the voice saying, let go, Luke, let go. Trust me. Yeah. And he turns off the computer. And then he trusts in the force, he's told. And he lets go. He trusts in <laughs> himself, trusts in that, you know, that he has the power within himself. And he trusts somehow in the universe and in life that I trust in life. I trust in life. I trust that this will be okay. I will be okay. And then he unleashes the torpedoes, uh, <laughs> destroys the Death Star. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I've seen <laughs> I've seen that scene millions of times, yeah. so I could I can add to it. He turns off his targeting computer, and yeah, Obi Wan says, "Let go, Luke. Let um, go. Let go. Trust. What does he say? Trust. trust he says, trust me. I just I just saw it yesterday. Trust <laughs> <Okay>. me. <laughs> Let go. Use the force. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a great scene. That's one of my favorite movies. So that's such a powerful scene. That moment of yeah. truth and uh, trust and <laughs> yeah. Well, we share many loves, uh, Stephen, guitar and, and that's the, the regional <laughs> Star Wars movies. But on the subject of mindfulness, there is a book I think that could help our audience, and that's your book, uh, From Mindfulness to Heartfulness, uh-huh. Transforming Self and Society with Compassion. And I was trying to get a figure on mindfulness has become this multi-million or maybe even multi-billion dollar industry of many books, courses, celebrity endorsements, and so on. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to go back to what you were touching on earlier on how we should understand mindfulness mm. and, yeah, eventually how you've tied that to um, heartfulness. How do you describe mindfulness when you're, you're asked? It's always changing, I'm finding, because (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that I am most grateful for is that I remain curious and alive about life, and I want to be open to being affected by what's out there, what comes to me, and learning from my experiences, learning from other people. And I've been teaching this for a number of years now, and my understanding of it evolves along with that teaching because I always want to teach in a way that I'm learning as well and that really live the, what I often say is that teaching and learning go best together and that everybody who comes to me because they want to learn from me are also teachers if I'm open to that. And I find that many of these so-called students and learners are actually become my teachers when I am open to that. And I'm not always open to it because I'm often in the position of being the one who is designated as the teacher and the leader, the wise, and more and more the wise elder. And so I'm supposed to have the knowledge and I sometimes, you know, give in to that ego tripping and feel like I need to give something to other people that they will then see as, oh, that's the, he's a great leader and he's a great teacher. And (laughs) And uh, 
And yet I realized, you know, I'm just really an, an old fool. I love the expression, obakasan. So the, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, baka is just the fool. But if you add o and san, it sounds like a wonderful fool or a <laughs> holy fool. And uh, so I feel like I'm just constantly, you know, being a fool. But I'm also, a fool can have the role also of helping other people to be aware of how they are not really living with an openness and an embracing of life. And I feel like that my awareness of mindfulness has been really helped by a lot of students who have told me that my idea that mindfulness is almost the same as meditation, right? That you get to mindfulness by going through meditation. And I, I've had many people assume that I'm Buddhist and uh, that even Buddhist monks have <laughs> asked me, where did I study Zen? So the, there's... <laughs> And I reply, well, yeah, Zen was Zen Zen. <laughs> and uh, they get a kick out of that. But I, I have actually, you know, not studied uh, Buddhism much. And I practiced it to a certain degree. But I, I really don't know that much about it. And I've moved because so many students have told me that they find meditation difficult or they try it and they find it's not for them. And I have, you know, persisted in saying, well, you've got to practice more. You can't just, you know, try it and say it doesn't work. And they said, but I've tried it for a long time. Or for many reasons like that, I have moved to a much more flexible, open position. Mindfulness is really just bringing your attention to the present moment. And it's bringing your whole self as much as possible to that moment. And that's why I like the that kanji, which shows the... Um, and I just happened to have my book with me. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. <laughs> so the kanji, which shows, you know, on the top, this is Nen, and the top shows that sense of Ima right now, and the bottom shows the Kokoro. And I feel like this is what mindfulness is in the sense that it it's bringing yourself to the present moment, yourself as much as possible, not not just the ego self, not just the mind self, but the self that is shown represented by the kokoro, the sense of the heartful part of you, the whole part of you. And however you do that, that's what mindfulness is. It could be through meditation, and it could be, that could be the greatest path to a deeper sense of mindfulness. But I also find that many practitioners of meditation don't seem to get at what I think of as more of the heartfulness, the way of experiencing life with in an open-hearted way. And so that's something that I felt my grandmother embodied throughout her very long life of up to 111. And I thought that the term heartfulness captured that more than mindfulness, mm. which I think has become, as you pointed out, something that has become very commercialized, very materialistic. And also it's embedded in a kind of American, for me anyway, because I live here, and I've seen it's how it's evolved here. And been, it seems very individualistic and spaced in an individualism, a philosophy of individualism. And the places that I live and work in Silicon Valley and at Stanford University, I see it being used more as a tool, another tool to become successful. So use mindfulness so that you can be even more successful, achieve more. So I wanted to also, you know, move us away from that, also that obsession with neuroscience and brain science and seeing 
everything through has to be taught and understood through what's going on in the brain in order for us to believe it. And I wanted us to move more away from that kind of a mechanical way of seeing the human body and mind and spirit. And uh, so I thought heartfulness might be a way of, of doing that. And, you know, it hasn't really caught on that much, but it's, I still like it and I still use it a lot. Well, I like it. So let's try and get it <laughs> out there. And what's interesting is that kanji, uh, nen, and specifically kokoros, another one of these amazing words that it takes, I mean, it just seems that you, you sort of have to live in Japan and live with the word for a while before you understand all its elements because first you think, oh, it, it just means heart, but it seems to combine heart, mind and spirit almost as one entity, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around when you're new to the culture. So would you like to touch on kokoro and what it means or how you understand it and why you've, yeah, you've moved from mindfulness to heartfulness because I'm sure kokoro plays a part in that. Dr. Stephen Murphy, Shigematsu and I continue this conversation on the next episode, episode 71. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.